Welcome to Whitetail 46, brought to you by Monster Meal Wildlife Feed and Attractants. Animal attraction, premium nutrition, superior results. Welcome back to Whitetail 46, the stories of American deer hunting. On this episode, we talk to Jacob Jake Bennett. We're going to go over Boston bow hunters, urban bucks, competitive deer hunting, the general state of deer hunting in urban areas and the differences between urban and rural hunting. Uh, Jake is an expert from the Northeast, uh, a little bit younger than I am, but I've known his family since I was very young. It's a really interesting time. If you like urban deer, Jake's the guy to talk to about it. Thanks for tuning in to Whitetail 46, brought to you by Monster Meal Wildlife Feed and Attractants. Good morning, everybody. Wintry day here in upstate New York. Welcome to Whitetail 46, the story of American deer hunting and American deer hunters. Uh, today, we have a unique guest in that uh, he's kind of gone through a transition as a hunter, not so much in how he hunts or what he does, but where he lives. Jake Bennett, uh, he kind of started the whole Boston Bow Hunter Facebook page. Uh, he was instrumental in that. He is an urban deer hunter. But he's unique in that he grew up close to me in upstate New York, uh, a very rural area with a very traditional deer hunting uh, culture and mentality. Uh, as he aged, he went to college, became a nurse, and moved to the greater Boston area. And in the greater Boston area, a lot of people don't understand that as deer moved into suburban settings, there's some phenomenal deer hunting in coastal Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, all through there. And Jake has just, he's a hunter, so he evolved his tactics, found new ways to hunt and new places to hunt. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the transition between being a traditional rural deer hunter and an urban deer hunter, some of the challenges that go, go into that, and a few things that are uh, better about it and a few things that are worse. Um, I've hunted deer in urban settings down near New York City in Westchester County. Uh, there are definitely some caveats that you have to be aware of when you're hunting in urban settings. We're going to get into competitive deer hunting and just lots of hunters, things like that. So uh, I won't ramble on anymore. Good morning, Jake. How are you today? Good morning, Blake. Uh, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. good. You, uh, you work nights, correct? Yes, sir. I work from 7 p.m. to 7.30 a.m. three days a week, and that is not a mistake, so I can hunt more. <laughs> yes, it's. Uh, I've always said that a lot of people have jobs just so that they can support their, their hobbies and their interests, um, and that's pretty really more typical than me, who was fortunate enough at 40 years old to kind of change to where my livelihood is. The last 10 years has, has evolved into... Uh, and it's revolved around the outdoor industry. So I've been pretty blessed in that regard. But most people are like you in that they have a nine to five job. They would love to make a living in the hunting industry. Um, be careful what you wish for. Yep. But uh, <laughs> but you've, you've kind of manipulated that so that you have your days open to hunt. Um, you grew up in Otsego County, Milford, New York. I kind of first met you through your dad. Uh, I met your dad at a turkey hunting seminar when I was young. Yes, yes. Um, Jake's dad really was one of the uh, the, the local expert turkey hunters um, when I grew up. Turkeys were, were new in my generation to central New York, uh, but it was there where uh, I, I met Jake's dad first. 
And it was, I don't know, probably 15 years after that, that Jake and I just happened to connect uh, through a mutual connection at Steel Force Broadheads. Yes, yes. He was, you were pretty active in, back then it was video with Shared Obsession TV. Yes. And you were pushing towards that just out of college, I think. Yeah, I think you actually started it before you went to college, well, correct? Well, actually, so funny enough, um, so rewinding a bit, my, my father, believe it or not, in the, in, the, in the 80s, turkey hunted a little bit, which was in upstate New York was somewhat kind of a new concept we had turkeys growing up on farmland um and, you know my 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 father had that you know lynch's world champion box call that i think is still probably one of the best pile calls out there today and uh, he tried it and he loved it but he, he had an, not an accident but he had a run-in with somebody where uh, he was almost shot by accident because you know turkey hunting calling and somebody was trying to stalk a bird and my father actually stopped turkey hunting for years and because of that one incident, and then when I grew up around the ages of 11 or 12, he and I both cut our teeth again back in the turkey woods. Um, my, you know, my dad still can't run a mouth call, but he is, you know, he's killed hundreds of birds. And uh, that's how we kind of reignited our flame for turkey hunting together when I became legal age to small game hunt because I, I really wanted to do it. My father had that one incident years prior. Um, and then shared obsession, believe it or not. So I went, I went to college in Vermont. And got uh, my bachelor's degree in, uh, let's just say, something I didn't really pursue, uh, I, you know, to be a doctor. And, and uh, so I got a, a pre, basically a pre-med degree. And then it was uh, 2005, I believe, or 2006, that we started Shared Obsession TV. I was in, you know, my 20s. And uh, me, a friend, family, my good friends, we just, we loved we were just very successful in, 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 you know, killing turkeys and deer every year. And we loved it. And we started doing it kind of amateurish. And then we loved showing it to people and seeing the reaction. Like, wow, man, that was awesome. Great shot. Cool experience. And not just the kills, but, you know, watching a fox pounce on a mouse and all that we call B-roll stuff. I mean, just loved it. You know, it's, it's one thing to tell somebody like, hey, this happened to me in the woods today. How cool is that? And they can just shake their head and say, oh, yeah, man, that sounds awesome. But to show them, you know, that that red tail hawk swooping down and getting the, you know, the squirrel that's 10 feet from you and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's a little bit cooler. So that kind of really ignited us into, into starting filming. That's neat. We, uh, I did, I recorded another podcast that we launched here fairly shortly with Ben Stern. He originated the first Tacticam camera and that really came about because of the same reason in that uh, he was a school teacher at the time, a technology guy uh, was a, a video and photo major in college and his grandfather who was aging at the time uh, would send him out hunting on the family property and uh, actually challenged him said listen you've got all these degrees in photography and you're out here telling me about these stories why don't you take some pictures and uh, so it so much of the American hunting tradition is prompted by an attachment to family uh, or uh, mutual interest, if you will. And, you know, back in 2005, VHS DVDs were, you know, VHS was converting to DVD, but film was the only mechanism oh, yeah. we had. We gas. We didn't have. We used to be able to say, we used to be able to say, did you get to kill on film? Because it was legit cassette film. Yes. We all had and, the, the Canon was the HB 30 
little micro cassettes that I thought were awesome because you could get a, an adapter to have a manual focus because there was a little wheel on the side. And we thought we, we thought we were hot potatoes, man. We loved it. Uh, but I remember we used to go to Walmart and buy cases of these little cassettes. And it was just the cat's meow, you know? Right. And I, I have very limited film experience and I've tried to do it with a few of my friends. And it's a unique experience because you get to share it with somebody. Um, but it, it has its challenges. Um, you know, you bring up another really important point that hunters realize that non-hunters tend to struggle with and that there's a whole lot more that goes into the hunting experience, whether it's the people you're with or that red-tailed hawk or a bobcat stuck in turkey decoy or the first time you see a fisher. Just watching nature interact with nature uh, it is worth the cost of admission, no matter what. And, you know, a lot of times non-hunters think that the only purpose that we have is a single-minded lust to go out there and kill anything. And that's absolutely not the case. You know, you've proven that, one, it's, it's more about telling the story. Right. And that's why, really why we started Whitetail 46 is that, you know, my goal is to educate and entertain. And the most entertaining things that I get to engage with is, as an industry professional and professional, I mean, I just make my living there, um, it, it, is that you get to hear the stories. Everything is so different. And Whitetail 46 is built around the, the, the fact that there's 46 states where you can legally harvest a whitetail deer. Right. We want to tell all those stories, but there's, there's stories within stories because, uh, you know, you've got urban Boston, but there's Western Massachusetts, which is really big timber. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the difference in, in growing up and learning to hunting and then having evolved into uh, a very proficient harvester of animals and, you know, we all go through that evolution or we hope to go through that evolution. Um, but that, that, that brings me to, you know, I, I talked about the disparity in, in perspective, um, where you grew up. Yeah. Hunting is, is part of the culture. It's not uh, looked at. It's a community standard where, where we're growing up. I'll never forget, you know, my first, when I was 16, my first opening day of shotgun Monday, because it used to be on a Monday. The Monday before Thanksgiving was open day of shotgun. They moved it to a Saturday to get more people involved, I think, what, like eight or nine years ago? It used to be on a Monday, yep. and it was where I, my region was, was slug guns. And the night before, you're at the hunting camp with your buddies, and everybody brought a potluck, you know, either, you know, bear stew or something, you know, and it's just great, great. <clears throat> and, and I try to capture that because I go back to New York every year, and this camaraderie, go to my buddy Brent's cabin, his family's there, and you look at the half rack spike corn on the wall, and they tell a story about how that buck was killed, and, you know, this buck. And, <clears throat> you know, of course, everybody passed around a little bit of whiskey or beer, whatever. He tells it's always, you know, safe, but that's that camaraderie, that family, that friendship that's ingrained. It's a very social experience <laughs> but i remember as a kid at 16 years old taking that monday off my father actually wrote me a note one year jake will not be attending school this year he has a bad case of buck fever blah 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 blah. the you know principal was like oh that's funny i'll see you in detention on thursday you know because took a day off school without permission and um but it was i remember one year they just there were so many people missing from school because it was open day gun season that they just said you know we can't put everybody in detention <clears throat> so <clears throat> 
it's a community standard. You see people driving around with, you know, their black and red plaid jackets and the shock. And back then it was legal. You had a gun rack or you had a shotgun seat next to you in case you had that lucky buck run across the road in front of you. You know, that <clears throat> it's just, uh, it's different from where I am now for sure. <clears throat> and like you said, explaining to people, especially since I, I do work in a, uh, in a healthcare environment, I'm, a, I'm an ER nurse and uh, a lot of people who, who, who are locals who grew up in Southeast Massachusetts in the greater Boston area, Northeast Massachusetts, <clears throat> they didn't grow up with hunting and they do. They say, well, geez, you just want to kill things or, Oh man. And then you also have people who are like, I love venison. Can I buy some from you? And I'm obviously like, no, but I'll give you some, you know, um, I explained to you like, listen, I hunt, <clears throat> I go out and spend hundreds of hours in a tree stand. I probably shoot one deer for every hundred that I see. It's not just a killing sports it's my therapy it's my time outside it's you know it's it's my own homeostatic regulation of of my emotions and mental stability being in the woods and, and, and hunting you know and yeah i do provide you know great organic food and god willing a trophy on the wall for my family which my wife not willing a trophy on the wall because she thinks we're full of them so it is this ebb and flow between the uneducated non-hunters that I have found that are willing to be educated if you talk to them in the right manner and you, and you, and you tell them the key points of why we do this, not just to kill and hunt and, and, you know, it's not a blood sport. You know, if, if, if you tell them the reasons why you actually do it, there are a lot, many of them are actually very receptive and, and, and respectful of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, the education, um, you know, unfortunately in society today, uneducated and ignorant are negative terms where uneducated and ignorant to me, both mean you just don't know. And I would say that 80% of the United States uh, really doesn't understand hunting or a hunting culture. Uh, they understand that it's out there. Mm -hmm. But like so much in today's society, you have a 10% fringe that is absolutely rabid anti-hunters. And you have a 10% that participates in the actual, um, the sports, uh, the, the blood sports, if you will. And their perspectives are so far apart that you, you and I have talked a lot about politics yeah. and that, um, you know, it's, you, you get that. Neither side is going to convince the other side, right. but there's that 80%. Especially in, in social media. I, I'm, I'm, I am yeah. a, a huge <laughs> proponent of leaving politics and went off, off of social media because I don't think a single person has ever changed their mind due to a social media post or meme. It's, it's either laugh at it or scroll on one or the other. Just it's, it's cancerous these days. Yeah, it's information is great, but too much information um, creates, I think, the situation that we have. You too know, much when, information when chokes you, the mind. Yes, and because when even you're younger than I am, when I was a, a kid, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have anything. Uh, the news was the six o'clock oh, yeah. news. That was that it. was, that what was it. Was and um, you know where you grew up. A lot of people don't understand. Or upstate New York is a very rural place. You know, cable was relatively new into the 90s in a lot of upstate New York. And so now but now we have we not only have, you know, 40 cable news channels, we have um, every news channel has its identifier for its target audience. And it's because they're not news agencies. They are marketing, uh, you know, oh. avenues. Um, you know, it's 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 all about advertising, but we're we're kind of getting off on a bunny trail here. But it does apply to hunting in that, um, I, you know, you, you probably live in 
one of the most, I, I, I hate the term liberal, but socially progressive mm -hmm. areas of the country. Yep. So, and our governor's Republican. Um, yeah. Yes. And, you know, it, New England is, is different mm -hmm. socially, even than New York. Um, but within it, the, the so-called normal culture, the, the mainstream culture still exists in, in that area. Uh, but you and I have talked in that I quit hunting urban areas because as you say, it's, it's my social disconnect mm -hmm. and I like going out and being alone and away from technology. I'm 50 years old. I don't like technology anyway, but it's a, it is the way of the world. Um, you deal with some really unique circumstances. I'm just going to, I'm going to bring up some bullet points and I want you to sure. talk about them. Competitive hunting. Oh. What causes, you know, what is the difference between an urban environment and where I live, which is 25 miles from the well, nearest Walmart? So competitive hunting. So this is, I, 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 I've, I've spoken on, on other podcasts regarding this. And I think was it, was it, was it, Charles Alshammer that published the the hierarchy of a hunter, the 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 different levels, I believe it was him, of growth for a hunter. You know, kill a deer, kill as many deer as you can, kill the biggest deer you can, kill the oldest deer, and then teach somebody else how to kill. It was something along those lines. And I think a lot of the hunting population of Massachusetts, especially the eastern part of the state, is relatively new to hunting because they didn't grew up with a family that hunted but they learned about it through either social media or something and they wanted to try it and so they you know they go to Bass Pro Shop or Dick's and buy all the stuff they can and they try hunting and so a lot of the population believe it or not are relatively new hunters and and don't know the unwritten rules um but I will say in suburban hunting or urban areas there's a lot more competition for a lot less space and it leads to some shady things and some poor interactions and disrespect of fellow hunters. And it's really, really overdone at times. And obviously I think the driving force for all this competition in hunting has to do with possibly, you know, social media, TV shows, you see these giant bucks getting killed, right? And you see social media showing this guy killed this giant 160 in Southeast Massachusetts or this and that. And a lot of people say, well, why not me? Or, and this happens all the time. Believe it or not, I'm Boston Bowhunter. I've seen it. Somebody posts a picture of a giant buck that they have on a trail camera. Guy goes in, goes into his social media outlet, right? Clicks on it. Clicks on his webpage. Oh, my God, he lives in Ludlow, Massachusetts, or this bear, Massachusetts. My cousin lives there. Hey, do you know this guy? Where does he hunt? Boom, next thing you know, that person is in those same woods chasing the same buck. I see it happen so many times it's nauseating. I mean, can you believe that? We call it Facebook we, sniping. They do it all the time. People who join <laughs> social media groups, they don't even post. They don't contribute. They literally look for people who post giant bucks on trail cameras, find out where they live, and try and find out where they hunt and chase the same buck. Like, how ridiculous is that? I'm, yeah, fishermen call it spot, spot burn. burn. Um, and again, it's, you know, technology can be a diagnostic tool. We're going to oh, get to sure. that a little bit later. Um. But it can, you know, with anything, any, anything you can think of can be misused. And now I, I, I want to just ask a very direct question in that 
uh, obviously there's less land to hunt in the greater Boston area than there is in Cortland yes. County, New York. There's also way more people there. So is it a function of even if a small percentage of a large population competes for the limited area, um, it, it, because we get competition out here where people get jealous of big deer or that you have permission to hunt on their neighbor's property, things like that. But when I get on the Boston Bowhunter site and I see um, the, the kind of miss the abuse of, of public resources and, um, not public resources, private resources where people steal things mostly. I mean, it's oh, amazing man, it's to me brutal. how much that it's goes the, out there. The hundreds of thousands um, of dollars of hunting equipment gets stolen every year. I mean, I've, I've been victim of it. I've probably lost two dozen, three dozen trail cameras. Last year, I lost a few cell cameras that were stolen. I still have two out, three out there. I got to go make sure they're not gone. And a lot of that's jealousy. I've had somebody steal a cell camera and just throw it in the water and I found it. Why? And and it's hard to diagnose because, again, this is the next evolution of this is you're not only competing with hunters for access to some of this open ground. Um, recreationally, people are active outside in urban areas at a much higher level. So you have things like bike paths and hiking trails and um, just open areas that people I, I don't care where you are. You enjoy nature and trees and things like that. There's, there's something therapeutic about it. So you also deal with oh yeah people and mm -hmm. hikers and bikers and um, that I don't have to deal with. Um, the worst thing I have to deal with is when I hunt the public ground around my house. I do get some Finger Lakes Trail hikers. I've only had one negative interaction with them for the most part. They want to hike. I want to hunt. Everybody's happy. Um, but it just seems like the level of conflict, and this is really why I stopped hunting yeah. in urban areas. I mean, I had people yeah, face I don't, my truck. Uh, last, last turkey season, I went with, well, speaking of working in healthcare, believe it or not, uh, about three years ago, working in at the hospital, a new doctor signed in to work and talking he's from illinois i'm like wow man there's great deer hunting in illinois he goes yeah i know i'm a huge deer hunter we actually became best friends we go to colorado elk hunting every year and this past year he had never shot turkey we were turkey hunting in a public land spot there's a pull-off i've been doing it for 10 years we went up in there he shot his first turkey awesome time come out and somebody had taken a flathead screwdriver from the passenger side of my truck all the way to the back around to the driver's side of the truck like right down to the metal just dug it right in scratched all the way around the truck and was it an anti-hunter? Who knows? Was it a jealous hunter? Who knows? I mean, there is a hunter I ran into there before who was upset that we shot a turkey. So it's 50-50, but that's something we deal with That to the point where I don't park in the open anymore. It was stupid of me. I parked in the open usually, and, and it's sad that I have to do that. I mean, sometimes I'll take my wife's minivan. It's yeah. I'm, I'm not going to divulge yeah. any of your secrets, but we've talked about it. I know when I, by the time I had... Uh, some of those urban areas in southern New Hampshire and, and downstate New York, uh, you got to the point where you drive a nondescript vehicle, you park in a mutual parking area, you go in under cover of darkness, you don't dress in camouflage, um, you wait for people to kind of vacate 
no, basically in and out under sure. And so, like, no witnesses. This past year, uh, I had a, uh, a guy who was filming me, um, who he wanted to not be dressed in the car and camo on the way to the woods because he didn't want to get sent on his clothes and he wanted to have his scent crusher bag and get dressed outside the car when we parked to get in the woods. Now, this is 100% legal. It's actually a private spot. I had permission to hunt that we were hunting. And I tell him, even if we're there, I don't want people seeing us go in the woods to knowing what we're doing. One, because there's always that one guy who works for the town who sees you pull over in camo and getting dressed and, hit, oh, my cousin hunts and I see these guys up in there all the time and I always see deer in there. You should go check it out, you know? Or an antler season, you come out to a couple flat tires. And it's just, I'd rather, if I'm going to go in camo in the woods, which I do, or I put my, I just wear a non-camo top and I put it in my backpack. Like jump out, grab your bow, grab your your backpack, and get twenty yards in the woods, and then set up. And it's not it's not illegal. It's not like yeah, you're trying to I, hide, but you are trying to hide. It's legal spots to go into. I just don't want people seeing you go in. There's a difference between being yeah. discreet. Um, you know, unfortunately, we do it with intent to exactly. avoid conflict. Um, and and that's a good thing. Avoiding conflict is a good thing. Conflict never really. You know, again, you're not going to convince someone who really doesn't want you to be there that it's a good thing that you're there. So you take some mitigation steps. Uh, but some people will say, well, you have to hide it because you know what you're doing is wrong. And I hear that more from mm -hmm. other hunters than I hear from anti-hunters. Anti-hunters will just come unglued and uncorked on you right there, and they'll be standing there with a sheriff or a town cop. And... You know, the poor cops. Just oh, I had the cops come out one day saying, uh, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm I'm hunting." I said, "Well, where's your gun?" I said, "I have my bow in my hand." I said, "Well, where's your gun?" I said, "At my house, locked up." What do you mean? He goes, "Well, somebody said they saw you go in the woods here with an AR-15." I said, "It's a compound bow." <laughs> He's like, and he goes, "He goes, well, in the yeah. goes, well, you can't hunt here." I said, "Why not?" He goes, "You can't hunt here." Is a non-hunting town, which is unconstitutional and not obviously true. I said, well, this is actually private property. It is hunting town. And I spoke to an environmental police officer and somebody at the, at the, at the police station. They said, I'm fine. This is private property. He said, well, I'll have to look into that, but I'm not sure. I said, okay, well, you're not sure. So can I go home now? You know, you first of all, you're, you're accusing me of having an AR-15 in the woods when it's a compound bow. It's, it's fear-mongering. It, you know, it, it's the unknown. It, but I'll tell you right now, hunters, we are the most genocidal people uh as a culture it's it, it's become it's become genocidal where gun hunters hate bow hunters bow hunters hate gun hunters hunters hate each other because they're successful and i'm not it's this it's it's this whole nauseating cycle it's got to stop yeah and along those lines I, I it's a good transition point where you and i have talked a couple times in that you've had some really poor experiences um yes. accusations of about your techniques, your legality, your ethics, your your everything, and in today's society, I, I talk about all the time. I'm a I'm a brand manager. I have to maintain a brand. I've worked, you know, every brand I've ever worked for. The one thing I've always said is you have to be ahead of the negative because if you're not in today's society, as soon as you're on the defense, right. you're guilty. Which which is not the innocent until proven guilty concept that our country was founded on, but it, it's generated from a, you know, a rapid 
flow of information about things. It's very easy. I always liken it to that game we used to play as kids where the whole kindergarten would sit in a circle and one person would whisper something into someone's ear. And by the time it got back to oh, the, yeah. the person, That's a tel- the telephone that, it was game. completely different story. Yeah. And, um, you know, that game was designed to teach kids that gossip right. is just gossip. Okay. And, and a lot of misinformation gets spread. But uh, again, when today's, when you can be bombarded with information, be careful what you do with information. Um, Reagan had one of the best quotes ever in trust, but verify. And we've, we've lost that a little bit, but um, what is the worst thing that has ever happened to you in that regard? Like someone uh, besmirching your reputation or anything. Um, is there any, would you like to tell us about anything or just well, you can give a kind of a, I, I think, I think no detail, but anybody who's successful in, in is going to have things said about them. It's just the way it is. Culture has changed so much in the last 20 years that <clears throat> there's no more joy for somebody else who's successful. It's just hatred and jealousy. And, uh, I guess you and I have talked about this in my past. And I think every hunter just is, uh, I'm not perfect. I'm no angel. Sure. I've ridden that gray area before either through ignorance or just not knowing that that wasn't allowed as far as this, this, you know, certain in Massachusetts hunting laws can be very confusing in that certain towns have certain bylaws that you can only bow hunt or, or bow hunting only or no hunting at all, which I've learned is unconstitutional. It's just a lot of laws. Um, but I've heard, I've had people not know who I was and talk badly about me in front of my face, not knowing I was the person they were talking badly about because, because they heard from somebody else that, <laughs> oh yeah, this giant buck was shot at night over a corn pile. And, uh, I was, I was like, really? Because I and have it on the, video in the middle the of the day and I where, shot it if you want to watch it. And to the point where you actually had, uh, environmental protection police officers make you go out in the woods and 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 justify a lot of things based upon the jealousy of another hunter and you're pretty i mean when you told me the one story it was the jealousy of another hunter and and i you know folks i get it that you have your spots and you work very very hard for your spots and we always talk about things as my tree or, or my spot or anything like that. But the reality of it is, is in a lot of cases, there's very few yeah. exclusive spots. And as you point out, I grew up with a very 4-H mentality where you celebrate effort um, and, and recognize accomplishment. But you, you never talk down to someone because they weren't the best. Um, and you never defame anybody, you know, based upon the fact that they were successful. You never, you never sure. downgrade. I, I agree, one hundred ten percent. And we, we, people who, oh, we've totally lost. We've lost that, for, and for fellow man and their success, it's yes. The whole scenario. What, what people don't understand is yes, I I've been blessed with some amazing success, and 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 growing up in upstate New York, it was just a let's be honest it was a whack and stack like uh three inches antler shoot it you know legal buck shoot yeah it. legal buck shoot it, shoot it. when buck. i moved here i was the same way until i met and some local people I'm like wow there are actually some giant bucks and i actually learned a former friend of mine who were no longer friends because of hunting which is sad and it happens uh actually 
actually he's a great outdoorsman. Um, I learned his techniques for hunting suburban areas and it is really ingenious, but they're actually applicable to big woods bucks as well. And I became more successful learning more and more and utilizing trail cameras and terrain and, and became more and more successful. What people understand is that for each buck, like I am literally, I, I spend three days a week on my way home from work at seven thirty in the morning in my scrubs. I scout, I check my cameras. If we have fresh snow, I don't care if I haven't slept. I've been up for 24, 30 hours. I still walk and find the, you know, see where the movement is look for fresh sign hang a camera i each buck i kill i earn it's not a oh i was walking through the woods today flicked my cigarette butt and this big buck came running in and i shot it it's more of hundreds and hundreds of hours of scouting goes into every single time i pull that trigger it's anyone can get lucky but the people that are consistently lucky generally make their own luck you know that's that is consistent no matter what you're talking about, hunting or any competitive sport, a, a vocation, a job, anything like that. And I think that's, we all would love to, to be involved in our passion and make it our work. Um, I was 40 years old and trust me, I made a painful transition uh, into the outdoor. I'd always, always been around it. Um, like I say, be careful what you wish for, but, uh, it, I, I know because you and I have known each other for a long time and you call me and you send me trail cam pictures and you know, eight o'clock in the morning, you're, you're walking around in, yeah. you know, May, June, July, August, uh, setting up a new camera, you know, talking about, you know, uh, hunting legally uh, yeah. around urban fixtures, like your dump buck and, um, you know, little things like that, where it's, uh, to, to have to have the level of isolation that you have to create is extremely difficult in an urban situation. Cause there's millions of people around you, literally millions of people around you where when I want to go to my 6,000 acre piece of public ground, I can pretty much guarantee you that I will not see another hunter there until hunting season. And it'll be mm -hmm. well into hunting season before I do. Um, so I don't have to hide from anybody. It's, uh, I just have to get away right. from the roadsides and, you know, where it is very different, which brings us to kind of the techniques that you've mm -hmm. refined. Um, you were one of the first people I knew to use a strategic application mm -hmm. with trail cameras. And you know me, I'm, I, I avoid technology like the plague. Um, and it was only last year that I adopted a cell cam program for my own hunting lease in Kentucky. Yeah. And it's because it's 14 hours away and my job is centered around at monster meal is centered around that is our tech farm. So I need data from that, but I'm a, you know, yeah, I have a love hate with cameras. Um, one, they require an awful lot of time to manage. And if you're not managing them well, yeah. They can actually hurt you. And I think more people are hurt by their addiction to cameras than actually take a, a thoughtful process to it. You've kind of really refined. You understand that in very small parcels of ground, your your contact has to be limited. And, and you need, you always yeah. call it MRI, most recent information. Um, when you hunt big deer on small tracks, the hardest part, it's hard to find the, the spot that a, a big deer wants to walk 
when you have an yeah of hundreds of acres but when you only have when you have to kill them on a six right. acre parcel it adds a whole new different level to cat and mouse um talk to me about how important you think technology is <clears throat> your hunting style well in, in that early so setting. up until uh let's say seven or eight years ago i had one trail camera and it was a giant like one foot by one foot <laughs> mulch remember those giant mulchies that looked like a five gallon trash like a five gallon oh yeah man. they took about they 12 like D batteries pounds. about a month i bought one of those and uh i remember i let it soak for like a month i got a picture of one deer and it was their butt and you could see they had a scrotum so i knew it was a buck and i was so excited i was like there's a buck i'm so excited i got a picture of a buck Thing I showed it to everybody, and then I ran into a guy who used to run those thirty-five millimeter cameras, and he had a bunch. We hung them out. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And CVS was like, "What the hell is this guy doing?" I'd go there and literally drop off a hundred dollars with the camera rolls a week, and then we transitioned into you know the the SD card cameras, and you really got into it, and because you, you you see that works, and and it, it's it is addictive. I mean, there's whole websites and people have dedicated their careers on on running trail cameras. Um, I do think the cell cameras now, they, so I'm a father of three. I work a full-time job. My wife works a full-time job. And it saves me that if run properly, cellular trail cameras can be very beneficial for those who have a very busy lifestyle. Um, and also if you're covering many, many tracts of land far, far away, anything along that line. The only issue I have with cell cameras is that people, they, they set them. They let them soak, and they're getting pictures. And what I used to love about running standard, you know, SD cameras was when you go to check that camera, you're scouting on your way in. You're getting more intel as you're checking, like, oh, my gosh, they're actually, you know, getting to the camera from this area. Look at this scrape line, this trail, this rub line. Oh, my gosh. You know, like, and you can reposition the camera, whereas cell cameras rarely get repositioned because they get checked, like, once a month when they need to have their, their batteries changed out, you know. Um Cellular cameras are very humbling. They will tell you immediately when you have screwed up and picked the wrong spot. That happens to me every year. Like, I'll sit in a stand, like, oh, cellular camera's going off. I take a look. I'm like, yep, should have been there today. But that's the hubris of hunting, you know. It's it's right. never guaranteed. <laughs> never. Um, you know. Even even when you have them right, on there's line, no there's no such thing as having one line. And, and like when you touch, like you have a six acre parcel of, of woods. Um, if you look at a topo map, or or not even topo, a satellite picture of the six acre parcel of woods, and then you forget about the houses and you forget about the roads and look at it as a piece of woods because the deer don't have the internet to look up satellite images of houses and roads during the day, sure, but at night when the sun sets, they don't give a crap. They walk across yards. They walk across highways. They walk across roads. They go through industrial parks. They don't care. You have to think of deer movement in the sense that there are no roads or houses. Now, during hunting hours, yes. Yes, they're not going to go walking across an industrial park at high noon, you know, in front of, you know, Dunkin' Donuts and D'Angelo's sub shop. It's They're going to, you know, stay tight in that one little parcel that they're in when the sun comes up. At least that's my been, been my experience. And when you get to these little four or five acre, 10 acre pieces of woods, the number one thing that I have found is most crucial to being successful is your entry point. Your entry point has to be on on, on cue. It's got to be silent. It's got to be with the right wind. 
because people think suburban deer hunting, oh, it's easy. Those deer are dumb. No, they are not. They're not dumb at all. You might get pictures in the daytime all the time, but you try and get in that piece of woods and kill them, and they are gone, and they will not be back in that piece of woods for a month, if at all. And when if that's the only piece of woods you can hunt in that area, you are done hunting that deer for over a month. And people have, people have to realize that. And and with small parcels, what's frustrating, what was very frustrating to me, um, I hunted an 11-acre parcel that was next to a 4,300-acre park that was no hunting down in, in the yeah. bow only zone in New York. Um, you have to get them to move where you want them to move on 11 acres. Now, if, if you break that down, there's probably only three trees on that 11 acres yep. that have consistent deer activity. And you can't afford to push them off of that activity because if you have three trees and you, yeah. the deer start to avoid that tree, one, they could be completely off the property you have permission to hunt. Number two, they're not likely, the more pressure they get, the they're not likely to use that. They don't have to use that 11-acre piece of property. They'll start to skirt it. They'll move differently. And like you said, it's, it's why, you know, it brings us back to that MRI type of hunting is you typically stay out of areas until yeah. you have right. consistent activity, predictable activity and a piece no matter how much you want to just say hey this spot's always good in this wind weather blah 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 you have to have the discipline to to kill bucks as consistently as you do to just say you know what i really want to go there today because i think it would be a good spot but i only think it's a good spot right i don't have anything telling me right i absolutely need to be here and now Small parcels, again, we're going to talk about the benefits of small parcels is, as you pointed out, even even though you have to look at the nighttime landscape completely differently than the daytime landscape, I will say that urban deer, one, they can be conditioned just like your dog. Your dog understands the way you wake up, the schedule you have in the morning, um, you know, and how it's going to react to that mm -hmm. schedule, whether it's positive or negative. And deer do the same thing. But they also, um, what I noticed about urban deer is urban deer, they're a lot like pressure deer in upstate New York. Is once you pressure, especially an older deer, buck or doe, they learn yeah. to really hunker down. They, they're very tolerant of you getting extremely close to them because at some level they don't, they can't rationalize it. But they know if I just don't get up, the threat's going to leave. It won't chase me because, well, let's face it, if you have a bow in your hands and six acres to hunt, you're not going to go bombing through that six acres hoping you get a shot at a running deer. So they, uh, they, you know, in some ways, it always amazes me how comfortable they'll get in very close proximity to a hunter. But they just, they do what they need to, to survive. And that's, yeah. okay, I'm not getting up until 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, um, so you can, uh, I, you know, I, we used to climb trees, move sands in the middle of the day because the wind swift, switched or anything, something like that. You move and you'd walk by deer who would watch you. You And it, intuitively, I want to say, yeah. I can't climb this tree. And. But when you're there for the day, 
you know the activity is where you want it to be. That deer will watch you climb a tree. Their memories are not real good. That yeah. deer will sit there until the cows come home. They'll almost never get up, but other deer will come through. And that is very unique. I don't think it's unique to urban deer. Uh, as I yes. pointed out, I think pressured deer react that way. Um, but it is incredibly difficult for right. a deer that's only moving. And, nice. and, uh, and, well, so, so here's know. the thing is people, I know a lot of people who, who, um, they, oh, they're nocturnal. I can't kill them here. They're the October lull. I, I, people are like, oh, it's the October lull. They're not moving. Deer move every day. You're just not where they are moving every day. The old adage, you can't kill them from the couch. Sure. It clicks in. If you are not having good daytime deer movement on your cameras, move your cameras. That is my, you know what I mean? That's, Deer, deer move every day, and they don't move like 10 feet every day. They get up, they wander, they do quite a bit. Um, it may be, and it depends on how aggressive you want to be. I mean, you have to understand being aggressive in a suburban setting can be detrimental, can be successful, but it also can ruin your chances at your target buck. Because like I said, if you bump them off a property, you might not be able to hunt them again for a month. But if you, if, if you, so last year, on, I don't know if you watched on Seabucks, it was opening week of deer season, and I had this buck I called Dibs, who was legit, probably pushing gross one seventy, and he was in a he was in a tiny piece that it was a, a tiny finger of woods that was connected to a larger, a couple hundred acre piece of woods. But my private property permission was on this little finger, and I found out that he was going through that finger to get to the houses because there were apple trees in the yards, and just after sunset they were going out there and smashing the apples. So this was like a staging area, little suburban staging area for him to go out in the cover of darkness to eat these apples. It was 75 degrees opening day. Me and my cameraman sat it opening day, had no movement, and we had had consistent daytime movement in that buck for like 14 days straight. He would show up a half an hour before dark. We thought we were going to kill opening day. but And we were thinking, oh, the next day is going to be just as bad. It's going to be 70 degrees. The wind's going to be even worse. Do we back off or do you stay aggressive and kill him? I mean, I wanted to kill that buck and I knew he would be there eventually in the daytime. So we moved the stand 30 yards to the right for a better wind. And sure enough, he came in. Granted, I put a broadhead right through the skin on the top of his back because I'm an idiot. But we were aggressive and it paid off. Could it have gone worse? Yeah, it could have. Right. There's, you know, you and I talk about the transitions of aggression in a, in a season. We'll, we might, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, seasonality. You know, one thing I always try to preach in any seminar that I'm giving any informational video that I, I, I film is deer only do things for three reasons, food, sex, and security. Kind of like, kind of like humans. And you have to understand why. Yeah. It's a, uh, right. You know, we are animals. <laughs> They're animals. They just, they don't have the ability to manipulate their environment. So when you're looking at how to hunt folks, always look at most limiting factor when it comes to food, sex, or security. Um, you brought up another point about October law, mid-October. I always say right. don't slip I tell, I, tell, I tell people this all the time. I said, oh, what do you we're, think? I said, we're well, coming. they don't live underground and they can't fly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're coming up on one of the most significant days in a whitetail's biological timeline, and that's March 15th. Um, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this, but there's so much information. I'm sure it's been covered. Um, I used to study deer on a, on, on a, a deer farm. 
Um, and I used to do diurnal activity logs. March 15th and October 15th. It's, it's interesting that October 15th is always the date that mm -hmm. everybody uses for the October lull. Um, and October 15th and March 15th are the two days on the, the sun calendar where there's right. equal amounts of daylight and dark. Okay. Those are the transitions in, in the, in the sun phases. Deer are very biologically, they're very sensitive to light. And when that October lull comes in, there's also a lot of other things that go into that. In the Northern hemisphere, yeah. you've got leaf drop that happens. You have crop harvest that happens. You have transitions from, um, you know, early, we tend to look at very high. Oh yeah. My dad saps his trees um, and the things, sap's flowing. Yeah. And then, then the hard mass starts to become more important as, as, the, as they fatten up. And that all happens right around October 15th. So it's not that they are not moving, as you point out. It's that they're changing drastically. They, they lose security because they lose leaf cover. They The food sources change, and they're not really keyed up for the rut. The bucks are, but the does, only a few of them have come into heat by mid-October. And yes, folks, there is a few does that are going to come in in October. Yep. And we've all seen it. And... You know, we see posts on social media all the time. Yeah. Man, the ruts awful so the this year. No, it's just I want, a, I want to touch a, on that for one second. The generalization yeah. of the current condition of the rut. Oh man, ruts on. Well, the ruts in phases. So yeah, technically it is. You're in the pre-rut phase, and you're in the seeking phase, and you're in the chasing phase, and you're in the lockdown phase, and it all starts all over again. So yeah, technically you are in the rut from October first until February. Through February, probably. So, yep, by all regards, we're in the rut. So different phases. And, it, and this is one yep. thing I try to tell. I, I uh, Listen, I, I'm not a professional. I don't have it locked down, but I feel like I have a pretty decent grasp on how um, the breeding phases go of white-tailed deer and humans for that fact. But when you think about it, every single deer herd, and I'm not talking from state to state i'm talking from parcel of woods to parcel of woods is very dependent on the age class of that doe herd and what i mean is you know jim and jack over on this 500 acres of private land they shoot a lot of does so their doe herd is probably three and a half and under well guess what they're gonna have more of a traditional rut right end of october through november for the first phase first for the first rut that goes through because those does are going to come into cycle as three and a half year old does but if say you have an older doe herd you have a, a doe herds that are six and a half seven and a half eight and a half those are the ones that are going to come into cycle in early october and then if you have a you know a bunch of yearlings and they're going to come into heat end of december january so it's like here in Massachusetts, i like to say we have a trickle rut for sure it's you have different age class of does coming into heat all the time so you could see really hard chasing from early October all the way through January. Is Now, when I say the rut is on, as far as chasing goes, I'm talking about that's when the largest population of a certain age class of does, like the, let's say the, the highest population of does are in heat in one to, during the same week. Because that's that's the highest age class of does. That's the most popular that's age class of does. If that makes, does any of that make sense? 
Sure. Um, yeah, I, I have a different viewpoint on it, and I'll, I'll just touch on it quickly. In that daylight, oh, yes. yes, triggers yes. activity. I can, I, I can take any doe and manipulate the. Well, that's how they collect. That's how they collect urine samples in a deer farm. Um, right. It, exactly. Um, so that's the primary thing. But biologically, when I started studying deer, the common mentality was a buck was going to jump on a doe, he was going to breed her, and then he was, you know, he would defend her while he was with her, but then he was going to be off. Once he was done, he was going to be off looking for the next doe. And what I started to see, especially when I started scrape hunting, was that, and we've all been there, you go into an area and it mm -hmm. is absolutely torn up. There's bucks chasing does everywhere, and it lasts for three or four days. And you can hunt the rut the rest of the <coughs> year there, and you you might see a buck cruising through. And what we knew from studying our captive deer was that the matriarchal yes. doe, the alpha doe, as people call her, her daughter set up fawning territories, mm -hmm. kind of like petals of a daisy around her. Okay. Now she is the one that leads all of them, but they're a big family. So you get two things. You've got genetic similarity and we all know what proximal heat is. If you've, if you've ever been mm -hmm. around a girl's dormitory, they all cycle college, the same time. You understand one thing that virtually. Sure. All yeah, we'll, we'll do that. So, yeah. So, and biologically, that makes more sense in that what is the best way to get as many does bred as possible to create kind of concentration zones, okay? Now, on the, on the front end of that and the back end of that is where we see the, the behavior that I think people are believing is a little more typical in that when the first does start to come in heat, a bigger, older deer definitely does not want to give up his security. He knows it's not time yet. So he may push her to a separate area. And she's pretty willing because when they're in heat, they don't want to be around other does. And most other does that aren't in heat don't want to be around her because they don't want to get harassed. So they'll separate. But we hit that magic period in November. With biologically, fawns have to be dropped, ideally, at a certain time. So, yeah, we, we get the big crush in early from the 1st to the 25th of November probably 80% of the breeding that's going to happen is going to happen or 80% of the first cycle heats in the herd are going to happen in that period we get a few that happen in October as you pointed out we get some that happen in December, January, February um, and that can vary greatly mm -hmm. by geography up north our deer but, but also think of think of think of your doe population you might occasionally how many need to be bred per buck as it pertains to also their age class and that down yes. here especially in a suburban yes. setting you um, probably have a much greater doe herd that needs to be bred in order for them to be bred you have to go into january and therefore what people don't understand is and a lot of people out here who don't shoot does i said well you probably should no they make bucks well guess what bucks die when they try to breed 60 70 does a year like, well, the statistical chances that a doe, even though she's seeking out a buck, and, and again, go back to that urban mentality of they, you know, I, I, 
Yeah. Aggressive bucks will will breed themselves to death. Passive bucks sure. will not. They'll take those based upon opportunity. The other thing is, is that the level of aggression varies greatly, even between one and a half and older age class bucks. But the bottom line is, is that if you don't have enough bucks to adequately yes. breed your does, there's always going to be breeding stress. It's I don't worry about it much because it's um, it's nature's way of limiting things, if you will. Uh, but when you get into situations where natural selection doesn't eliminate part of the deer herd, um, mm -hmm. eventually natural selection becomes a BMW. And that's where urban herds really struggle is you don't have access to it. Um, there, you will get a lot of does and a lot of fawns and a lot of death. And, and that's just part of nature. will figure it out if we can't. Um, and for the most part, hunters limit it, but they, we are not the best uh, no. controller of deer herds. And that, that's, that's not a slap to hunters. It's just, right. Know, we have and, a limited and, and time that we can the, affect them. Every hunter and has a different within that <clears throat> Some hunters are fill their freezer, which is probably best for population control. Sure. We have those that only want to kill something for their wall, which is absolutely fine. Um, and so, therefore, they fill one, maybe two deer tags a year and no does. I find myself in between that. I love to eat venison. My family eats venison. We rarely buy beef. So I fill as many doe tags as I can and try to save my buck tags for mature buck. Yeah. And, you know, as you pointed out, there's no sense in Well, it goes back to respect. We have to respect right why people wrong. hunt. Um, Not put them down. You know, wh wh whether it be... To fill tags, as long as it's a legal and, means of harvesting, and I hate the word harvesting, a legal means of filling a tag. We need to respect that everybody hunts for different reasons. Okay, we right. we can say killing, killing deer on this podcast. I don't. It uh, is filling it is. tags. As long as it's legal, we have to respect everybody's choice on why to do it because everybody does it for a different reason. Whether it be, I mean, I know people who hunt who don't eat deer meat. Everybody's like, oh, that's terrible. Well, he, as long as the meat is utilized, I don't care. Maybe that is that person's emotional release, and that is their therapy, is being out there and hunting. And the act of pursuing game is uh, the contest that they need in their life to stay level. You know what I mean? And I respect that. As long as the meat's not wasted. Yeah. If it's right, not right. wasted, and, um, if it's not actually, wasted there's no negative effect, right? He, his family, he hates deer meat. They don't eat it. But he pays to get it processed, and he donates it to people. Um, now that being said, this competition between hunters, I'm in no competition with anybody but myself. I always want to do better, bigger, faster. I always want to be the, uh, the best hunter that I can be. Some years I, I succeed many years. I don't most years I'd say I don't, but the competition between hunters, I feel there should be no competition between hunters. There's no, it's not a competitive sport. It should not be a competitive sport with anybody but yourself and, and the animal. Right. Nobody wins. And it goes back, oh, yeah, I killed this giant it, buck. Yeah, I see, I it, see it, pictures absolutely. of people like, there's one person, he's actually a really good hunter and a great shot. He's got pictures of himself with his shirt off, like blood all over him, like uh, screaming, He, you know, holding the deer up by its neck. And I'm like, you killed something. Good for you. That was your intended purpose. But every time I kill a, a big buck, yeah, there's, there's remorse. You killed something. You killed something that you spent hundreds of hours figuring out so that you could kill them. Yes, there's excitement, but also you will never get another trail camera picture of that deer again. You will never sit in a stand looking for that buck again. It's over. Yeah, you won. 
but it's over. There's a buck that I chased for four years ago, four years, and you remember him? He's a sluggo. Chased him forever, and I think we had him at oh, nine yeah. and a half years old, and I killed him. And I literally, I, I, I mean, of course, I cried because I'm an, I'm an idiot. But that's it's this is the emotional response you get from hunting. I sat down the next day and went through all the the thousands of trail cam pictures I had of him from when he was a hundred and fifteen inch eight pointer to where he was a hundred and sixty inch ten pointer to where I killed him with a hundred and forty nine inch ten pointer. And I sat out there and I was like depressed. I was like, "Aren't you jacked?" I'm like, "I'm never gonna get another trail cam picture of him. I'm never gonna hunt him again. I'm never gonna see his telltale scrapes with a five foot licking branch." It uh, like I'm not like it's over, it's over. I wish I could still chase him. I wish I could kill him, pet him, hold his rack, and then poof, blow air back into him, let him run off. Right. Yeah, hunting's not catch and release. There's a um, and and that's uh, again the information or the perspective that we have in society. Yeah, is for every winner you've got a loser, mm-hmm. and and we all want to celebrate with the winner. But we're losing the ability to respect that there's there's loss. If it, take a a wrestling match, okay, somebody wins that wrestling match and somebody loses that wrestling match. It doesn't mean that the loser's a bad wrestler, and it doesn't mean that you don't respect the bad wrestler. Um, and, and it's the same with deer, isn't it? We have. I don't. You know, people ask me if I feel remorse when I kill a deer. No, I don't. Remorse. Well, when I, when I, when I say remorse, I it's, it's, it's remorse for myself. Killing a deer. Because, we, you know, but, not not remorse that I killed animals. Remorse that yes. I feel bad that I'll never be able to. Like, like you said, the hundreds and hundreds of hours of sitting, planning, plotting, looking over maps. When you have a target deer, not everybody hunts a target deer. You know, everybody has a hit list or whatever. And I, I, I like to find, but, you know, one or two bucks. That, I don't. You, you, I, God, I want to kill a deer. And you focus on that one deer because I feel like truly to be successful on the killing that biggest buck you have you have to literally be psychotically obsessed with it um but when you do it's like that dog that catches a car you know dogs chase car and they catch a car they don't know what to do it like oh my gosh what do i do now now that he's dead now what do i do you know it's it's just one of those it's remorse almost for yourself because you're kind of lost after you, you shoot your target buck you spent four years chasing and thousands of hours but <laughs> to, to over to over glamorize it you pick up the pieces and you find another one <laughs> and and once you find another one you kind of lose that remorse yeah it's uh one one of the gentlemen i hunt with a, a group of uh basically six guys on 1200 acres close to my house and we all talk about the big deer it's a it's one of the best mm-hmm. groups i've ever hunted with in that nobody's hiding any secrets um but when one of the deer dies it's it's interesting to watch the reaction of all the other people. Some people are genuinely happy for the person. We have one guy who you can yeah. tell it just rubs him a little bit that he didn't kill the deer. And that's 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 okay too because it's 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 okay to be disappointed in personal goals as long as you don't lash out at the yeah. other person for accomplishing what their personal goal was. And and then we have uh, I, we we have other people who lose made of motivation. Mm-hmm. As the the available target, the game of odds range. is not in their favor anymore. And, yeah, and that's so. And, and I can say that right now that one yeah, of my, my best friends, my partner Billy, and my buddy Frank, and Billy and I chased Sluggo together for four years. There were two bucks in there that were absolutely monsters that we were chasing, and Sluggo was one of them. And I, this is how I know Bill's like my best friend, is that he was hunting him the same day that I was hunting him, and I killed him, and I. When I told him, he cried, gave me a hug, picked me up off the ground, 
celebrated like there was no tomorrow. Almost as if he had shot it. Now, every time I kill a buck, he is the first one there to help me get him out of the woods, to give me a hug, high five, celebrate. And that's how you know. I mean, he is. That's how I know he's a real. He's really my hunting buddy. My buddy Frank's the same way. You know, it's, it's, it, yeah, I've, I've lost some good friends hunting and it's sad, but you also find out who and, your real friends are. Yeah. I not so jokingly say big deer women and yeah. men will cause you more problems in your wife, in your life than any three things that I I'm aware of. And it is, it's a, it's amazing to me in that when you do find, I have, I've hunted with the same Barry Duquette. He'll be on here when one of the podcasts, he's from Vermont. I met him when I lived there and we started hunting together 25 years ago and we've hunted together somewhere or multiple places for 25 years and I, he struggled. I mean, struggled. Mm-hmm. Would zig when he should have zag. Overthink. Uh, had some unfortunate misses. Uh, just could not put it together. But two years ago, two seasons ago, he killed a 152 inch deer with a rifle in Kentucky. And I mean, 150 inch deer is is a more than respectable deer anywhere in the world. But it was amazing. I mean, as soon as I got the text, he sent me a picture of it on the ground. We were opening day of Kentucky rifle season. I picked up <laughs> stuff. I started almost jogging, and I'm not built for jogging. Uh, back back to get him. I left my Swarovski mm-hmm. binoculars on a stump next to where I was sitting. Had to go back and get them because I was so excited. And But I'll be the first to admit, there was a time in my life where you, yep. you talked, brought it up earlier. There's an evolution as a hunter. Um, where I was too competitive and I will, I will tell you folks that are in your competitive stage. Um, it's part of what you go through. You want to accomplish something and you're very focused on, on, on doing that. Um, but you will never find more enjoyment than when you do have that one person that's always there with every hunt that you go on and you can celebrate their success just as much as you celebrate your own, it's almost like being a parent. Okay. In that when, if your children decide to hunt and they actually pick up and do what you do, um, it's, there's not a lot of pride in it because all you can do is introduce them to it, but there's a satisfaction that happens when a person that you, you respect accomplishes anything. And that's, you know, Barry's also a, a Mason and, He's one of the highest level masons that you can get. And, and I, it is amazing to me that he has reached that level of success, the amount of dedication it takes to be the best yeah. at anything um, is commendable and should be, you know, as long as you do it the right way. You know, we, we've, we've all heard about these hunting celebrities that just well, go it's, off it's, the it's rails. It's the pressure of, of, of producing, and important. I feel like that also there is a competitive the take-home message of this podcast is forget about the competition and hunt for the right reasons, which are your reasons, and hopefully it's not to be in competition with your fellow hunter. I feel like a lot of trail cameras and tree stands that get stolen are from competi- competitive minds yes. that if I take the trail camera, if I take the stand, they're not going to want to be here anymore, and now I'll have this piece of woods to myself. And, folks, that's the same mentality that the lady yep. – that accosts you when you come out of the woods for 
murdering a deer, they won't come back. I make this uncomfortable for someone else. Right. Will stop doing what I don't want them to do. And, you know, as hunters, we have mm-hmm. to be very conscious of, of the way that we address other hunters um, and, and not hunters alike, but especially don't cannibalize our ranks. Um, I'm, I'm glad, yeah. you know, you, you bring that up as it's the most important thing. Um, sure. We've been on here for quite some time. I have a few questions I want to ask you just off the cuff answers. There's no right or wrong answers. I think I know the answer to this one. What piece of equipment that you use today do you would you absolutely hmm. um, say makes the biggest joking. difference in your success? <laughs> uh, I would say yes. I would say trail cameras because that gives you information that you cannot pick up any other way. Unless you're going to sit out there with infrared binoculars and scan the piece of woods you plan on hunting all night long. And all day, it gives you invaluable information that if you are savvy enough to put together, it can be invaluable. Um, that, that, what's that? I, and you're, I mean, you are the my quintessential example of mm-hmm. you take a very capable hunter and you give him good information. It, it sure. is going and to, like and the thing is, is you understand there's going to be some consistent that. results there. Ten, fifteen years ago, and, uh, we didn't have trail cameras. We were going by sign scrapes, rubs, you know, feeding patterns, track, and you take that. And I, I got people who I, I saw people like, oh man, look at the size of this rub right here. I'm going to set up on this rub, and I was like, what else is telling you to set up there? Well, nothing. Look at the size of this rub. There's three of them right behind it. I said, great. That just means that a buck was there at one point in time. Is there fresh track? Is there feeding pattern? Is there what terrain tells you he's funneling through here? Are there scrapes? Are there are there are there seasonal scrapes? Or is there just one where he's walking along? Goes, I smell some piss here. I'm going to scrape the leaves for a second. You know, is there a licking branch? Is it? Tell me more. And so, up until ten years ago, now what I literally look for is I find terrain. I find a scrape that's right down to the dirt. This is a new piece of property I'm talking about. And then if you look. There's usually a hoof print right in the middle of that scrape. If that hoof print is big enough, I mean, if you, I'm not going to go into reading hoof prints, but if you know it looks like a mature buck of hoof print, I hang a camera on it. And that's just, and that's just like when I'm finding new pieces of wood to see what's in the area. And people get hung up on the sides of rubs. I took a walk out back behind my house yesterday, and there are cedar trees the size of my thigh that are shredded. That I know people are like, oh my God, there's got to be a giant here. Well, I ran 15 cameras back there this past year, and there's not a deer over three and a half. <laughs> I have pictures of them making rubs on those trees, you know? So what trail cameras have done is they've given us information and specifics of right. you are going after a certain and age class of bucks, a certain size buck, or want to know where they are in the daytime. That gives you the opportunity to have that information, which is invaluable. I, I talk about a lot in my seminars. If, if I asked you in any other aspect of your life, your job, if I gave you one piece of information, would you feel comfortable making a clear decision about whether to act on that one piece of information? And there's the reality is, is there's very few times in life where you're going to want to take one piece of information and not try to correlate it to other pieces of information. Um, and it kind of started in our generation with with magazine articles yeah. you know you'd read something about scrape hunting you became obsessed with scrape hunting or tree well, I, I, want, I want to touch or, on or or years or things ago, like that 90s, but it was evolving information public land hunters 
And there's very one famous one, and not even that famous, but he's a guy by the name of Warren Womack. You ever hear Warren Womack, Louisiana? The guy's killed, I don't know, he's killed more deer than CWD. He is yep. a straight-up killer, nicest guy forever, straight-up southern boy. And the, the article used to say, go deeper and farther into the public lands than anybody else, and you'll kill your big buck. Remember that? Go deeper, go farther, go harder. Everybody does that mm-hmm. now. Until they get, you know, and I'm telling you right now is, Wait till everybody goes deeper, farther, and harder. You take a left and go right behind the house, and that's where you'll find the big bucks. Oh, again, if if I have one indication that a deer has been in the area, that's that's information. But if I have mm-hmm. if I look at those three giant rubs in a row, and I look at where they are, and they're in a terrain funnel. Oh, sure, with a bedding on one side and a consistent food source on the other. Yeah. And a lot of beyond that, right? Yeah, I, I'm. All of a sudden, the pieces are coming together. Okay, he has limited options to move through this piece, and that's why he's doing that. Now he still may be doing it at two o'clock in the morning, but you know, it, when I started mm-hmm. scrape hunting, it was it was kind of like that. We're going to get back to questions. Um, urban hunting, hunting or hunting back home, which is your favorite? Well, it's, well yeah, that, why are you really it's, I, think I have enough deer on the wall. Thing, but, uh, My father's um, 70, going to be 71 in May. The times I spend with him are worth more than any amount of inches of bone on any deer's head. Um, and that's that's cut and dry the answer. And yep. I go to Colorado every year. There's a reason. Is that I can sit down and hear nothing but bees in the wind. And I can go back home to upstate New York in Cooperstown. And same thing. You just... It's, it's quiet. It's peaceful. You're, you know, and there are big bucks here. And like I said, and you and I talked about this, the adventures out your back door, make of it what you will. This is where I live and I've just made of it what I can. And I'm, I love hunting here. I do because there are big bucks, but sometimes I'm like, Jesus, I wish they would stop using the excavator. I wish they'd stop using the leaf blower. I'd like to hear a deer coming into me, but you know, that's just, it's a product of where I live. Yeah, we, the, one of the things we didn't touch on that I really wanted to touch on, and I'm glad you made that statement, is hunters are hunters. And it doesn't matter, you know, Jake grew up in rural upstate dairy country in New York. Um, it's literally called Leatherstocking Country, yep. for uh, named after um, uh, James Fenimore Cooper. No. Uh, and um, it, it's a beautiful landscape of hills and fields and wonderful wildlife habitat awesome place to grow up if you like the outdoor stuff but you take a kid that grew up there who's a hunter and you move them to literally suburban boston the drive to hunt is is in a in hunters okay i think there's a lot of people in that 80 percent that i talked about that don't even understand that they have the capability of being a hunter or a fisherman or an outdoorsman um, because they don't get the exposure to it. And I think that's even more so in urban areas. My sister lives in Hamilton, Massachusetts, no. and it it is definitely not a hunting culture there. Um, and But you take a hunter, and this is the, the one thing that I, I want to, a lot of people develop real specialized hunting techniques or um kind of the way that they do things. Um, I, I know a local guy here who really 
he's to the point where he doesn't enjoy New York hunting because we don't have the caliber of bucks that he has when he travels to four states a year. Um, and he's got the, the means and wherewithal to do that. That's awesome for him. Um, but I, that does not resonate with me personally, just because I don't care where I am. I'm going to find a way to hunt deer and I'm going to take deer. I'm going to kill deer based upon the prevailing availability of the resource more than I am saying I'm only going to hunt a deer if he's 150 inches or I'm only going to, you know, hunt Boone and Crockett deer or things like that. Because the reality right. My scale of expectation changes to where, I'm where that's even realistic. But absolutely. And at the end of the day, I've, I, I hunt less now that I work in and around the hunting industry than I ever did before because I realized all my other jobs were really convenient right. ways to provide me with the time to hunt. <laughs> and now I actually hunt a little bit less, a whole lot less than what I used to. Uh, but I, I love my job. And the, but what it's mm -hmm. allowed me to do is really look at things and say, at the end of the day, I'm a hunter. And I don't care if I'm in Vermont shooting really small deer um, with, you know, because that's what's there. Okay. And that's when I lived in Vermont for nine years, when I moved there, I had not killed a deer that wasn't an ear with six point in probably eight or nine years by personal choice. And my brother-in-law looked at me, my, he was my future brother-in-law at the time. And he said, that's going to change really quickly. And it's just because the harsh winters right. in new England and those big woods do not grow large antler deer. It's, you know, getting better. I think the, 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 the whole, um, the hunting population has evolved, but at the end of the day, we hunt because we're hunters, not because of the, the the price. And I think that is, as you pointed out, we're all hunters and we can't infight and everything. We have to break it down to, it doesn't matter whether you hunt turkeys or upland birds or waterfowl or predators or, or white-tailed deer or other big game. We all do it because we have a primal urge to hunt. And it doesn't matter whether you put us in New York City, Boston, or L.A., um, you're going to find a way to scratch that itch because it, 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 it's something in you that drives you. And then the social mechanisms spur that on. So I, I did want to, that was one of the points of this urban hunting podcast is you really, you made a transition as socially as a hunter, but you always right. pursued, it wasn't like you took 10 years off and just came back into it. It was, well, I'm the first year here, I moved I'm back to Boston, <clears throat> I mean, when I say Boston, then I lived the most a block from Fenway park. Like I lived in Boston. Um, I would drive back to New York every weekend, strain my relationship a little bit. I drove back to New York every weekend, but I still found a piece of woods. I could sit in on a weekend where I couldn't come back during the weekdays, you know, didn't have trail cameras, found a couple of scrubs, yep. some saplings, the size of my thumb. That's about it. But I sat it, you know. Yep. <laughs> hunting with a long time. And you were still hunting. And that's the whole point of. Uh... Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. your old. It was an 83 pound, like a 28 inches. Heavy and I killed my first trad deer with it. Longbow curve, right? Yeah. <laughs> my, as my friend, my trad. Yeah, I got say, a 30 only draw, to 26 But inches. I'm pretty sure I only got that um, one back to 27 and a half. <laughs> but. Uh, Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah it, Eighty-five pounds will definitely compress the draw cycle a little bit. 
Um, but yeah. it works, and it, it's kind of cool. It's just another challenge. Um, uh, other other questions. Elk. Uh, what is your favorite <laughs> animal to hunt? I'll be going out. I, I tell everybody, don't now. ever go out. Um, good friend of mine bought a place out in well. Colorado, and he invited me. And because of his profession, we would only go the last week in August to the first week in September. So he couldn't really hear him bugle, couldn't really interact. It was basically hiking with a bow in your hand. We actually had opportunities and killed every year. Um, but not this year, the year passed. My friend, the doctor I work with, Maurice, we decided to go last week in September. And come to find out, I can call an elk. Um, I mean, I'm a big turkey caller. I love that stuff. And it's the same thing. It's just a 600-pound turkey. Um, when you have – and it's one thing, like, I actually, I spend more time in my life chasing deer than anything yep. else. But it's that thought of September in Colorado with the aspens changing and the screaming bugle. When you have an elk rip at you from 20 yards away, nothing will ever compare to that. Nothing will ever. I mean, it's a – poop your pants scenario it's unreal um and literally i uh the last three four years been getting in shape i train hard work out six days a week just for i mean it might be my excuse but just for colorado yeah <laughs> but no i, I, I have a i'm in, in shape my, in, in my shape. friend at, uh maurice who i go with he runs 50 mile <laughs> uh... races um and uh so he's in prime shape he, he's he's like 150 pounds i'm like 230 so it's a little bit different shapes um but we both train for it like and it's just for one week of the year there's only one week of the year we spent in colorado but it means so much to us that last week i couldn't believe it i mean last week i mean not even last week monday march 1st that is application acceptance day for colorado tags and you look forward to it even we won't know till april 6th if we drew or not but we can apply we are all pumped up and texting back and forth and putting our tag requests and everything. So right. Yeah. Same amount of anticipation as when you put out your first. Yeah. It's unreal for the year. You know, it's, it's what drives you. Um, I love elk hunting. Um, go. I'm 50 years old. I don't have, well, that's what, you know, you know God bless my wife. Hardcore elk hunting I want to go every year my, that I capably can. My, lifetime? my father is 70 year old last year. My father, 70 years old. Killed his first elk last year with us. Public property. We only go public land. Um, seven years old. We tried hard. All I mean, we had opportunities every single day. We got into some absolute giants. We got into a three hundred inch six by six with twenty four inch, you know, fours like unreal elk. Just to see him at hundred yards was unreal. Um, <clears throat> on the last day we could hunt, <clears throat> my father filled his first elk tag at seventy years old with a bow. Mm-hmm. We did four, let's see, we hunted for four and a half days, which is off 36 miles. My dad only missed five of those miles because he took a half day off. Yeah. Your, your dad's a tough bird. He's been through an off I think lot six years to overcome in the last. Yeah. Was it, how long has it been since his accident? Yeah. For those who don't know, my dad had a, uh, my, years, my dad, um, that was pretty sketchy. trees for, for <laughs> firewood. He heats his house primarily with a wood stove. And he was felling some ash trees and had one get hung up. And then, well, he was cutting one to knock it down. It came down on his leg and uh, pinned him down and uh, almost lost his leg. He had like three bone grafts, two tissue grafts, and some skin grafts. And his basically from his knee down, his leg's basically fused. But he deals with pain every day, but still gets out there and kills deer. 
and an elk. An elk. That's right. So don't don't. Bruce Almighty. Say you you have an excuse. But Jake, it's been awesome talking to you. Jake Bennett is an urban deer specialist, but overall deer hunter. I hope everybody here has enjoyed the conversation that we've had. Uh, Jake is as much an expert on big deer scrape hunting and urban whitetails as I've ever met. You <laughs> might, may or may not have heard of him. Probably most people outside of the Northeast never have. Uh, I'm privileged in, in my lifetime to have met a lot of hunters. You and I, despite an age generational gap, and all different kinds, we've always stayed connected and together, and we genuinely enjoy the stories that each other tells. And uh, that embodies what is Whitetail 46, the story of American deer hunting. Brought to you by Monster Meal Wildlife Feed and Attractants. Even if you can't bait in your state, look into supplemental feeding. It is supplemental feeding. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And click back in. There's going to be a lot more uploaded here in the next few weeks. I don't know what the order is, but uh, <laughs> well, thank you very much, Blake. Jake, Appreciate thanks it. Thanks for taking um, the time out of your day. I know you need everybody. to get to bed because you, you've been have up the all hunt of your life. To get the full Whitetail 46 experience with videos, blogs, and more, go to whitetail46.com. Follow our podcast by subscribing to Sportsman's Nation on your favorite app store.